Starts Ephesians chapter 5, starting at verse 15. Look carefully then how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise, making the best use of the time, because the days are evil. Therefore, do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. And do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit, addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart, giving thanks always and for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is, in, and is himself its saviour. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself, for no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church, because we are members of his body. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound, and I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. However, let each one of you love his wife as himself, and let the wife see that she respects her husband. Now, as we begin, let's pray for clear understanding and humble obedience to God's word. Let's pray. Our Father, thank you for speaking to us instructing us through your word. Thank you for this part of your word, this letter to the Ephesians, this particular section, which sets out very clearly who we are as a church and how we are to live. Help us to listen. Enable us to understand. And grant us the humility and obedience to live as you call us, because it is good and true and reveals your wisdom. Father, glorify your name through this local church, living in a way that is worthy of the calling to which we have been called. For Jesus' sake. Amen. Now, as always, there are some simple headings on the back of the service sheet, and if you have the Bibles open at page 978. Now, the first point you'll see on the service sheet is simply marriages in the church. Our topic tonight in Ephesians is marriages in the church, or even more specifically, marriages in this church that we are part of. This important passage on marriage in the New Testament is in this letter to the Ephesians. And as you know, if you've been with us on Sunday evenings, Ephesians is a letter written to local churches like Chalmers 
It's not addressed to the church universal. It is addressed to the church local, local communities of faith. It is about how we are supernaturally in Christ to live on the basis of who we are supernaturally in Christ. And so cutting to application, our focus tonight is on marriages in Chammers. To those of us who are married, this is how God wants us to live out our faith in our marriages. To those of us who are not married, this is what we should be praying for, for those who are married in the church. For those of us who may be married in the future, this is the pattern for marriage God gives us. And if what we read here and study here sounds to us controversial, that is perhaps for one of three reasons. Number one, it is controversial because it is different from our culture. But that, of course, does not alter in any way that it is right and good. It is just different. Second reason, we haven't studied what the Bible teaches about marriage. Or the third reason, that it may be heard by us as controversial, is that we have studied and we have listened to what the Bible teaches about marriage. We do understand it, but we won't accept it. Now, it's important we study verses 22 to 33 in their context. So let's read verses 15 to 21 again which I've summarized as, live wisely, doing God's will, filled with the Spirit. So verse 15, look carefully then how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise, making the best use of the time, because the days are evil. Therefore do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. And do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit, addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart, giving thanks always and for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. Look carefully how you walk or how you live. Live wisely. Do not live according to the pattern of the world, but understand what the will of the Lord is. Be filled with the Spirit, which results in us addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, giving thanks to God for everything, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. Submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. Being filled with the Holy Spirit means submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ, just as much as it means living in accordance with God's will, singing to one another, and continually thanking God. It is the Spirit within us that enables us, that inspires us, that gives us the desire to live out how God wants us to live in marriage and in other relationships. What is the motivation for submission? Verse 21, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. 
the motivation for submission is reverence for Jesus. Or if you like, the motivation is Ephesians 4 verse 1, that overarching verse for the second half of the letter. Live in a manner that is worthy of the calling to which you have been called. We are Christ's workmanship. This is how we are to live. Do we respect Jesus such that we will do what he says? Now, submitting to one another, what does that verse mean? Is it a reciprocal command whereby we are all to submit to one another? Is it a general, overarching principle whereby all Christians are to live with respect to one another with an attitude of submission? Is that what it means? It cannot mean that for these reasons. Number one, the verb to submit in the Greek text never, not once, in the New Testament has to do with mutual submission. Two, and much more important, is the context in the letter. Look at what follows. And Paul is saying at this point in Ephesians, let me show you what submission looks like in three areas. Number one, wives to husbands. That's chapter 5, 22 to 33. Number two, children to parents, chapter 6, 1 to 4. Number three, workers to bosses, chapter 6, verses 5 to 9. And look at how each of these sections begins. Look at 5:22 to 23. Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its Savior. And then the second context, chapter 6, verses 1 and 2, look at that. Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Honor your father and mother. And then the third context, chapter 6, verses 5 to 6, bond servants, obey your earthly masters with fear and trembling, with a sincere heart as you would Christ, not by the way of eye service as people pleasers, but as bond servants of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart, rendering service with a good will as to the Lord. These relationships are not about mutual or reciprocal submission. That is absolutely clear from the context. Next Sunday night, we'll look at children and parents. How odd it would be next Sunday night if I tried to find a way to say that when the Bible says, children obey your parents in the Lord, that meant mutual reciprocal submission, parents to children, children to parents. It just doesn't. It's not what it says and nor does it say that with marriage. Now, why am I being direct? I'm not. I'm just saying what it says. It's very important that we listen to Paul's words, as Roger reminded us this morning, as Jesus' words. So let's look at God's pattern for marriage, wives, then husband, first uh, wives. 
That's verses 22 to 24. Let's read them again. Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is itself its Savior. Now, as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to, your, to their husbands. God asks wives to submit to their husbands as to the Lord. What does submission mean? It means a wife acknowledging the headship of their husbands in the marriage and in the home. It means to accept and embrace the God-given responsibility to husbands to lead. What does submission not mean? It does not mean inequality. Culture says it means inequality. God says it doesn't. God created men and women to be equal. He created humanity in his image, men and women. He created them. The equality of men and women is reaffirmed in the New Testament. For example, Galatians 3, there is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free, there is neither male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. That is crystal clear. Women and men are equal. In marriage, the equality of women or wives and men or husbands is affirmed and set in the Bible alongside complementarity, wives and husbands having different roles and responsibilities. Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord, for the husband is the head of the wife. Equality alongside complementarity. Complementarity or difference worked out in submission and headship. Now, don't conclude that equality and complementarity, that is submission and headship, don't conclude that equality alongside submission and headship is a contradiction. Unless you conclude that God is contradicting himself in his word. It is a God-given, perfect pattern for a marriage. Now, what does submission mean practically in a marriage? It's not for me to tell you exactly. That's not a cop-out. It's true. My responsibility as minister in Chalmers is to encourage you tonight as wives to listen to God's word and pray through what this means in your marriage as wives. My responsibility as minister of Chalmers is to encourage you as couples to talk together and pray through what this means. That may simply be admitting this is not how your marriage is patterned and seeking to put it right. It is very important. Let me read to you a section from Tim Keller's book, The Meaning of Marriage, which he wrote uh, along with his wife, Kathy. And I find this comment very helpful and sensible. The particular excerpt I'll read was written by his wife, Kathy Keller, and she writes, In the late 1980s, our family was situated in a very livable suburb of Philadelphia, where Tim held a full-time position. Then he got an offer to move to New York City to plant a church. 
He was excited by the idea, but I was appalled. Raising our three wild boys in Manhattan was unthinkable. Not only that, but almost no one who knew anything about Manhattan thought that the project would be successful. I also knew that this would not be something that Tim would be able to do as a nine-to-five. It would absorb the whole family and nearly all of our time. It was clear to me, she writes, that Tim wanted to go, but I had serious doubts that it was the right choice. I expressed my strong doubts to Tim, who responded, well, if you don't want to go, then we won't go. To which I replied, oh, no, you don't. You are not putting the decision on me. That is abdication. If you think this is the right thing to do, then exercise your leadership and make the choice. It is your job to break this logjam wisely and by listening. It is my job, she writes, to wrestle with God until I can joyfully support your call. Tim made the decision to come to New York City and plant Redeemer Presbyterian Church, which is where Sam gets the name. And then she writes this. Remember, taking responsibility properly is just as hard as submitting to it. Finally, why are wives to submit to their husbands? God says it in his word. And that is a powerful and persuasive reason for sure. But notice also that the way God says it in his word is to weave it into a description of the relationship between Christ and his church. So read with me again, verse 22. Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its saviour. As the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. The church's relationship to Jesus, one of submission to his headship and his leadership, is the example, the pattern, the disarming, persuasive pattern that God sets before wives. Some people argue that the reference to head in verse 23, the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ is the head of the church, means source rather than head, as in the one responsible to lead. But that just doesn't stack up in any way with the plain and obvious reading of the text. Indeed, the fact that the clear instruction of wives to submit to their husbands is woven into a description of the submission of the church to Christ And you would rightly pick me up if I said that we are not to submit to the Lordship of Christ, all of us, makes it absolutely clear. Wives, let me ask you, are you living like this in your marriages? Are we praying for this, for the marriages in this church and Redeemer? At the end of the day, it is a matter of plain obedience to the God who inspired these words. Now, husbands, verses 25 to 30. Let's read these verses again. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, 
so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish or holy and blameless. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church, because we are members of his body. How is it then that husbands are to exercise headship or leadership? And this is very powerful. Not by rule, but by love. How are husbands to exercise headship or leadership? Not by rule, but by love. Wives are to submit to their husbands as to the Lord. Husbands are to love their wives as Christ loved the church. God lays a responsibility on husbands to love their wives with a love modeled on Christ's love for the church, which is self-sacrificing love. It is not husbands, lead or rule your wives. It is husbands, love with a self-sacrificing heart your wives, just like Jesus did for his church. The nature, the extent of Christ's love for his bride, the church, he gave himself up for her. He suffered and he bled and he died for her sake. He willingly laid down his life for his bride, the church. Every time I do a wedding, I will ask the groom if he would give up his life for his wife. And the answer must be yes. But a husband's self-sacrificing love for their wife is just part of daily normal life that puts her needs first. And just let me say at this point that I do not read these things or preach these things confidently or with a good track record behind me or even a good week behind me. So I preach them to my heart as much as to any of hers, doing stuff for her to make life easier for her, cherishing her, letting her rest. If a couple have children, getting up early to take them where they need to go, staying up late to bring them home again. Self-sacrificing love can mean putting her preferences before your own. I have two personal illustrations tonight. I am banned from any more. Buy her a dog if she really wants one. Walk it. If she's tidy and you're not, then tidy up. They're not silly illustrations, these. This is nothing to do with our lives, but if she is untidy and you are not, tidy up. And don't tell her every time you do it what a mess it was and why you had to tidy it up. People are just wired differently. What is it that she loves that you don't? What is it that she loves that you moan about? In our marriage, it was, was Christmas. My family, my wife and children, our parents, their grandparents, had to put up with me for years, discouraging people over Christmas. My annual joke, Christmas has been cancelled. I used to say that about 30 times in December. I'd read it on the news, and when the children were young, I think they believed me. 
Why are you sending them a card? Answer, because it means something to them and it encourages them. Do I have to go? Yes, you do. They are our friends and they're not Christians and they do not see us from one year to the next apart from on Christmas Eve. And after 20 years of marriage, moaning about Christmas, I used this as an illustration, preaching at Davy and Emma's wedding in December. And you know how many men came up to me afterwards and said, I've just been a grumbly misery guts for years. And actually, I said sorry to my wife today and they said, thank you. Thank you. And the Christmas in our house just passed was different. When I'm not saying I embraced it hook, line, and sinker. But I sorted myself out and it made a big difference. So much so that Sally's parents said that when they left. This has been a different Christmas. And I knew the answer was me. Now, I hope that is not too trivial an example. That's what it looks like. Because the Christian life is about normal day-to-day life. But the most important expression of self-sacrificing love, and here the husbands in the room, I suspect, will, 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 will squirm and look straight ahead or even shut their eyes, is to take responsibility in their marriage for reading the Bible together and praying as a couple. You're tired. You just want to watch the football on the TV. Come on. Let's pray together. Who says that more often than the other? Come on, husbands. Come on. Let's pray together. That is self-sacrificing love. What is the purpose or the goal of a husband's self-sacrificing love for their wife? How did Christ love the church? He gave himself up for her, self-sacrificing love, but for what purpose, to what end? That he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. Christ bled and died for his bride, the church, for you and me, so that we might be changed or sanctified into the likeness of Christ, having been cleansed of our sins, and one day to present his church, you and I, perfect. What a wonderful picture of self-sacrificing love. What can I do? How can I cherish her? What can I give her? What time can I give her? Come on and pray with me that she might grow in spiritual stature and godliness and holiness to see your wife grow as a Christian is the God-given heart that the Holy Spirit gives to a Christian husband. One more thing to say to husbands, verse 28, in the same way husbands should love their wives as their own bodies, he who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church, because we are members of his body. And the picture here is a husband loving his wife as he loves his own body, his own body that he nurtures and cherishes. He should love his wife in a similar way. And this is something really profound and very wonderful. The picture here, I think, is of Christ's love for his body, the church, That is us if we are Christians. As members of Christ's body, we are connected to him. Christ indwells us by his spirit. Christ's relationship with his bride, the church, 
which is you and me, is one flesh. He lives in us. It is that close. It is that affectionate. It is that intimate. Christ loves us as his very own body. And so he nourishes us and he cherishes us. He shepherds us and he protects us. Husbands, husbands here tonight, that is the model of closeness, of oneness, of intimacy with which you are to love your wives. It is your responsibility, husbands, to take the lead in this. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. That's why Genesis 2 puts it that way around. It is to the man that the mandate is given to lead the couple into this close, one flesh, unity of love, physically, intimately, spiritually, emotionally. That's what it means to love your wife as you love your own body, because you are one with her as Christ is one with you. Husbands, are you living like this in your marriages? In the end of the day, it is a matter of plain obedience to God. Now, verse 31 is a natural conclusion to the verses describing a husband's responsibility, but it also sits alongside verses 32 to 33. And taken together, verses 32 to 33, I've given you the heading, marriage. Marriage, as it is described in these verses, is patterned on creation and on Christ's relationship with the church. Let's read them. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound. And I'm saying that at first to Christ and the church, however, let each one of you love his wife as himself, and let the wife see that she respects her husband. Verse 31 is a quotation from Genesis 2. The Bible's a kind of creation. Why is Paul, the writer, quoting from Genesis 2? To make the point that the marriage pattern he has described here in Ephesians is not cultural but creational. To make the point that it is timeless in its application. To make that point for times in our culture where this is dissonant with our culture. This is creational. It guards against the interpretation that the pattern for marriage described here is just one for the first century. It is not applicable anymore. Now, I could try and persuade you from the marriages that I have seen that are strong that this pattern is right, but isn't it better that Paul takes us back to creation? God's design? And Paul makes the point by rooting it not simply in creation. He also roots it in redemption. Marriage, in accordance with a pattern described here, is a picture of the relationship between Christ and his church. Or we might say it mirrors the relationship between Christ and the church. A marriage patterned in accordance with God's word. Now we could run from one end of Scripture to the other. Genesis 1 and 2 end with marriage. Revelation 21 and 22, the the other bookend, begin with marriage. Redemption is pictured as marriage patterned in accordance with men and women, as Paul describes here. Now, let me conclude with some reasons why this matters a great deal. 
It matters to an individual marriage, your marriage, my marriage. It matters to an individual marriage because this is what God says is best for a marriage. It is what makes a marriage good and strong and loving and meaningful. It is what makes a marriage godly. When the relationship is right in a marriage, both husband and wife grow in godliness. Second, it matters a great deal to the church that the married couples are part of. Remember the message of Ephesians as a whole, that God's plan in the fullness of time is to unite all things in Christ in a new creation. And God's plan in the present, in this age, is to reveal his wisdom through the local church. Local churches scattered all over the world, and local churches are to be a picture of eternity. In what way? Principally, Ephesians 4, by the unity that characterizes the church community. Community implies unity, and a local church displays supernatural unity, and a key contributing factor to the supernatural unity in a local church is the supernatural unity in the marriages in that local church. See Paul's point? What is described here in Ephesians 5? Marriages that are not like this in a local church are contributing less to the unity of the church and thus to the display of God's wisdom. And often, marriages that will not accept this teaching will not accept this, that, and the other in the New Testament. So the unity is undermined. Couples who are determined not to live in this way in their marriage in church... Wives who will not submit to their husbands and husbands who will not love their wives as Christ loved the church have shaky convictions on a number of issues. And most of all, it matters to God. It matters to God that we believe what he says is good and obey him. And so at the end of the day, it is a matter of plain obedience to the Lord. And so to marry couples... Go home and talk about it, pray about it. Do not lecture the other on how they fall short of what God asks of them. Rather, do yourself what God asks of you. To all of us, pray for the marriages in Chammers, that they would be like this, building up the unity of this church, revealing God's supernatural wisdom, thus creating a community that is worthy of the wonderful calling we have received. And my last word is to remember failure is overwhelmed by grace. Do we not, men, husbands, need grace every day to live like this? Do we not, women, wives, need grace every day to live like this? Those of you who are Christians, married to people who are not Christians, you need an extra measure of grace. And let me encourage you that you have been very much in my mind as I have prepared and prayed through this this week. To those of you who would look to be married in the future, let me encourage you to spend time praying that God will enable you to be a husband and a wife like this. 
to those of you who have lost husbands and wives. Some of you are here tonight. Thank God for how they loved you as Christ loved the church. Or thank God for how they submitted to your lead and raised the bar for you in your godliness and said, no, I respect you as I respect and revere Christ. It's not controversial. It's just right and good and true. Let's pray. Thank you. Father God, we thank you for these words in Scripture, how helpful and clear they are. Help us to pray about them, live by them, and to grow up into maturity and unity as a church, because this is how the marriages here are. Lord, we just take a moment to acknowledge our failure. I take a moment to acknowledge my failure, and others here as husbands will, uh, wives here will uh, as well. Lord, we pray that uh, we would uh, not feel that we are abject failures, but thank you for uh, speaking to us from your word and multiply grace to us to enable us so to live and to go home tonight and, and make a difference to the way that we live. And Lord, we pray for those who would love to be married but who aren't married and who've heard this as a pang to their hearts. Lord, give to them a real heart to pray for the marriages in this community and peace to wait on your time. Pray for those, Lord, who are in unhappy marriages. Pray for those who are married to people who are not Christians. Pray for those who have lost loved ones, who have blessed them in this way. Lord, all of these reasons make this an unwise sermon to preach. But you are wiser than human wisdom, and your words are true and good. And so comfort and heal and strengthen, and help us to listen and obey. For Christ's sake, amen.